Today's scripture reading is Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Text is up there. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, as there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. Please be seated. The kids are being dismissed at this time. Donnie keeps asking me when we're going to get another Baptist sermon. And you might get one today, depending on how you feel I preach, whatever that means. Uh, If you've gotten to know me, uh, I'm Jason Anderson. I'm the pastoral resident here. Um, I've just been here since March. If you've gotten to know me, uh, or even if you haven't, you've sort of observed me from afar, maybe you may or may not have realized that I, I love living in bundles of contradictions. So I say one thing and I say the next thing and they contradict each other and somehow I'm okay with believing both things, I guess. Um, I think I'm happy to live in sort of this in-between world of, well, I don't know. I think I drive, drive Amy, my wife, crazy. So I think as a pastor for the past seven years, it's it does you good to be willing to live in this imperfect realm where it's really hard to know what, what is clearly and truly the case, but oftentimes we can't actually line by line write out what's happening, what is true and what is false. Instead, we've got to live in a little bit of crazy. So if you live with me, you've got to live with a little bit of crazy. Now, in a slightly different way, uh, in America, we have these contradictions all the time. We live in tension. So you think of, when do you become an adult? Some of you kids who are 15 think you become an adult at 16 because you get a driver's license and you can go really fast in a car or not. But you still can't buy controlled substances and I think you can't get exactly, you can't get married uh, until you're 18. So now it's 18 or 16. I don't know which one's the difference. But then you still can't buy, of course, alcohol until you're 21. There's sort of this blurry line of when you are truly an adult. And you know, when we were kids, my dad would always say, well, you're an adult when you turn 30. Of course, now that he's, I don't know, 60-something, 70, 68, he says, well, you're not an adult until you're 50. Or, I don't, you know, you're never really an adult until you're older than your parents. Again, these contradictions that we kind of live with. As Christians, we have these things in our doctrines as well. There are things in Christian teaching as we read through the Scriptures that are both true, and yet there's things that are not exactly true, or not exactly, we're not fully experiencing it right now. 
So, for instance, salvation is something we talk about. We, when we become a Christian, we talk about being saved. I'm saved. I put my faith in Christ when I was four. That's what I say. Back before my memory even remembers. I was baptized when I was six. And, you know, I've been a Christian for quite a long time now. I was saved back then. And yet, there's still a sense that we, we are looking forward to a future salvation. There's some futureness to it too, isn't it? We're waiting for the day. We sang these in some of our songs. When, when Christ returns, when we're with, in His presence forever, when sin and death are no more. Right? There's salvation in the past and in the present. There, there's this tension between these two things. There's lots of other themes you could draw out in the Bible that are yes and no. One thing is there's this idea of exile. In reading about chapter 20 of Revelation this morning, people are saying, well, we're still in exile. And some of these people writing books, Christians are in exile. So in some ways we say, well, you live in St. Paul here. We live in Minneapolis over there. Well, we're just temporary residents of this place. We're living in exile until we get home to the promised land. And yet, when you read Hebrews 12, we, we hear something different. You, you read Hebrews 12, it says, we have already come to the city of the living God. We're here now. We've already entered into that rest. Both and. We're waiting for it, but we've entered it. Now, that is not always very exciting for us who like nice categories. Okay, I don't like nice categories. I'm not including myself in that group, okay? But you, for you all who like nice categories, I like categories sometimes. But one of the difficulties in life is that we can't just, we, there's just no way to put everything in a logical box. We, we experience tensions throughout our lives. The biggest tension is that even though we are growing up, we're also growing into and growing towards death. Someday, we will be put six feet under in the ground. A preacher or pastor is going to say the words of committal over the grave, and people will leave, and you will be there. There's a tension there. There's this dichotomy between life and death. So in these, this world where it's hard to put everything in a category... It should teach us to be humble. It should teach us to be patient. And I think in, in some ways as we come to Revelation 20, although there's lots of other talk about what we could say is the main point, I think the main point is that John is illustrating through these visions that there is this tension between the fact that God has already won in Christ and yet there's still a, a victory that's still to come. Satan is still bound, and yet he still is not finally defeated. We've experienced a sort of life, and yet death is not fully done with. We live in a tension. That's Revelation chapter 20. So that, that's what I think John's main theological point is. As we're going through Revelation, Brian's been saying that the theological point, I think, for this morning, Revelation 20, the theological point is... Be happy as you sit in this tension of the already and the not yet. As we dive more into chapter 20, let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning needing wisdom. 
As the Apostle Paul t- teaches us in Romans 16, he says, look, God's going to crush Satan soon, but you know what? Be wise with good and innocent to evil. We, we, we ask and we know that we need to ask you for this wisdom. And so as we approach and consider and muse on chapter 20 of Revelation, we pray that you would inspire us through your Holy Spirit that you have sent us to live lives that are devoted to good because you have conquered. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get into this passage, there's something that might stand out to you. There's, there's this little thing that has been talked about a lot in the, his, the past hundred years or so of the church, and that is a thousand years. So you look at chapter 20, you see that John says a thousand years, a handful of times. And you might have heard of millennialism, millennial something or other, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, and every other kind of millennial. There's been friendly banter, discussion, and there's been unfriendly banter and discussion about this thousand years and what it means. Where does it sit in the relation to the church and when Jesus comes back? So some people say there's a church age, and then there's Jesus comes back. Actually, I can't really tell you. I'm just going to trust you and trust you to Brian's sermon that he preached a while back about something or other. Okay, I'm going to take a view, but I just, you know, mixed up all the categories for you. So there's, there's these things about the millennium. So that is often what gets focused on in chapter 20, and that's not what we're going to focus on today. That's the point of what I was saying. So what we can all agree on as we approach chapter 20 and as we think about the thousand years is this. It does not affect your view, our salvation. What, what you believe in doesn't affect your view of salva- your salvation. So if you believe in the post-millennial viewpoint, you can still have faith in Christ and are saved. If you believe in the amillennial viewpoint, the same thing. All three viewpoints of the millennium, at the end of the day, when Christ comes back and we've entered into the heavenly city, we all are going to be singing his praises, and that's going to be passed. So, it's okay for you to have an opinion. It's great for you to think about these thousand years. But it's not something that affects salvation. What I would encourage you to do, if you haven't made a decision about this and anything in the Scriptures, is to be patient. Be patient with your reading of Scripture. Let it marinate more than anything else. Don't make decisions as much as thinking, considering, meditating on what God has said as you have gro- are growing into your life of faith. This morning, I'm hoping to take a little different direction, okay, than all these millennial viewpoints and laying them out for you. The point of this morning's sermon is that we ought to be confident in our salvation that is been bought by Christ because the devil is bound and the devil and death will soon be crushed. 
They'll soon be forgotten and be thrown into the lake of fire. And so we can have confidence even today in our life of faith as we live day by day trusting in the Lord both through sorrow and through joy. I think it's helpful before we move through the text to get our bearings. I like to get bearings as I go through a sermon. So before we get into the text, let's think about where we've come from. We've just been through like the weightiest part of Revelation. After chapter, say, four or five, you start reading Revelation, it's lots of bad stuff is, gonna ha- is happening. Lots of devilish, fiendish things are happening. Chapter 18 is a huge list, essentially, of how Babylon's going to fall apart and God's going to win over Babylon. The end of the city of Babylon. We've just heard about in chapter 19 the end of the two beasts. In chapter 20, there's still some problems left for us to deal with. In chapter 20, there's two troubles that the world isn't rid of yet. It's that ancient serpent Satan, the devil, and death itself. So the question chapter 20 answers is, what about that serpent who started all this stuff? What about death that's the effect of the fall? Is that going to get dealt with too, like Jesus dealt with the, the, the two beasts? And the second thing is, There's been a lot of talk about Babylon, but what about the saints? And so that's what chapter 20 answers. The end of the Satan, the end of death, and the future hope of the saints. The point for us is we live in this tension. Again, I'm saying it again in chapter 20. This is where we're at today. We're stuck in this tension of death is still coming, but we still have hope. We still have a future. We can't forget what is ours. Our, if you have put your faith in Christ, your name is written in the book of life. I'm going to move through the passage in order. So we're just going to start by considering the first few verses, first three verses, which we see is the this, sealing this of Satan. And then we'll look at the next few verses, four to six, first resurrection, then the next few verses, the last battle, and finally the unsealing of the books. So let's look at those first few verses. In chapter 19, and before, it was all about Babylon and the beasts. Chapter 20 reminds us that their master hasn't been dealt with. If you've ever read Lord of the Rings, you know there's Sauron, but then there's some guy behind Sauron. Same thing here. There's these beasts, but there's some guy behind the beasts. It's the serpent. It's the devil. John hasn't seen and told us about the devil being cast into the lake of fire. Now remember, these are visions. They're images that communicated truth, which means we're not here chronological. Instead, it's topical. He's dealt with the beast, now he's dealing with the devil. And he's dealing, he's, he is dealt with in two movements. The devil is. The first movement is in verses 1 to 3. What happens to the devil? We see it the first in verses 1 to 4. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand 
in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he, he grabbed the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended and that he must, after that he must be released for a little while. Now, having read that passage, I'm going to say that I'm going to essentially take kind of an amillennial position. As a preacher, i got to choose a uh, position. So that's what I got for you today. You're free to come to a different conclusion. It seems to me, though, as I'm putting these pieces together from Revelation and the rest of the Bible, that this binding of Satan is done after Christ has finished his work on the cross. Just think of that image from Genesis chapter 3. The, the curse of humans, the curse of the serpent, and the curse on the woman. He says to the serpent specifically, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be some mutually bruising happening. And as God cursed the serpent, this cursing becomes to full effect. This bruising comes to effect when Jesus crushes the serpent on the cross. As Jesus is receiving his blow on the cross, so the devil receives his blow. So I think one way we can talk about Revelation 20 here is to say that this blow in John's language, the blow of Genesis 3, is the serpent getting bound. He's not wandering around earth anymore. Just remember the devil in the Old Testament. The serpent goes up to the council of God and says, hey, God says, have you seen my servant Job? And the serpent says, he's not going to keep doing that. The serpent accuses and he actually has, is entrusted to take away stuff from Job. He's not doing that anymore. He's not given that kind of free reign. And there's a reason for it. The specific thing that happens when the serpent is bound is he cannot deceive the nations any longer. That's the point. Now just think of the story of the history of Israel and the church. The 2,000 years after Christ, what happened? The Word of God spread and has spread to many nations of the world. Every single continent, there are people who claim Christ. Now think of before Christ. Man, the Word of God barely spread to the people of Israel. It barely reaches outside of the borders of Israel, and if it does, it's this widow who Elijah goes to that nobody listen, would listen to. Just if you just Google, maybe you're not going to be able to find it, ancient Israelite trash heap. And what you will find, or maybe go idols in ancient Israelite trash heap. The ancient Israelite trash heaps are full of very crazy idols. Just go to the Israel Museum sometime and you'll, you'll see piles and piles of idols that they found. 
The Israelites loved their idols a lot a bit, and their God not a bit. In other words, the oppression of the devil seemed almost insurmountable in the Old Testament, and yet God preserved His own. Then Jesus came, and what did they, what did, even Jesus' presence, the demons, they said, stop, no God, don't send me to the abyss. Jesus powerfully rebuked the demons. It was a force to be reckoned with, the Son of God was. This was an enormous turning point when the demonic turned and fled. When Christ died on the cross, ironically, even as He was bruised, He also rose from the dead. He bruised the serpent. And Revelation calls this putting the serpent in chains, in a pit. But it does seem like Satan can still do his fiendish work. He is, he's restrained, and that means the gospel can go to all the nations of the earth, and yet he's not vanquished yet. He's not thrown into the lake of fire. Like mafia bosses in prison, seems like they can still control their mobs outside of prison. Okay, I've only seen this on TV, in TV shows that I watch, but I know it's true. I feel it in my heart. But at some point, and this does happen, these mafia bosses who are put in prison, who think they can pull the strings from prison, at some point they die in prison at 90 in Leavenworth. Just, look, just over the past 10 years, there's been a handful of mafia bosses who have been forgotten and have died in prison, whose terror and power have been vanquished. Satan is bound. His power is limited. And one day, there'll be a future battle. This is what Revelation 20 says. God's going to release him and says, come on. But you know what? His power's going to be shown to be empty. Just like those who die in Leavenworth, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and be forgotten forever. So church, when, when we consider the demonic powers of this world, yes, they are there, but for those who confess Christ, we have a strong and steady anchor for our souls. We, we don't act it from a place of fear, but a place of confidence in Christ, because Christ is risen. Now, where are all the saints when this is happening? That's the next question that we gotta, we got to think about. That's what John is thinking about. Okay, the serpent is bound, but where are the saints? Verse 4 highlights this. The saints who have persevered to death are raised with Christ, are ruling with Christ. This is one of those tensions that I talked about. It's such an interesting thing in the New Testament. I love how Paul always brings these things up. So, for instance, in Ephesians... <clears throat> he says, even Ephesians chapter 2, that great passage about grace, you've been saved. He says a little bit later on, oh, I guess it's right there. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. 
Not only has he made us alive, he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For those who have been saved by grace, you're sitting with Jesus in heaven. That'll take an Ephesians sermon to figure that out. But you see there's this tension between us living here now and and us sitting with Jesus in heaven. So even though we're physically down here on earth, even though we haven't died, we've been made alive. We're sitting with Jesus. And, and for those especially, John is highlighting the fact that those, for those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God and those who have not worshipped the beast, those who have been faithful to Christ, these are the ones whose endurance has proven their faith. We see this most clearly with those who have given their lives for Christ, but it's for everyone who's not worshipped the beast, who's not followed after the lies of Babylon. In death, Christians will see Christ that very day. Their hope will be made sure They'll reign with them. I think that's what chapter 20, verses 4 and following is saying. It seems to me the best way to piece chapter 20 together, which is, which is to say that this thousand-year reign of Christ, to me, seems like not a literal thousand years, but an, an age, an epoch. I don't know why I'm bringing up the Lord of the Rings a second time today, but uh, like the Lord of the Rings epics. Read Cimmerillion, and there's these different epics. The age of Numenor and the age of man. Right now, we are in the age of the church, which John calls the thousand years. But at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released, which we see in verse 7. So let's look at that right now. In verse 7 and following, we have these two camps. On the one hand, we have Satan. He's been released from prison and he's collected nations that he has deceived from the four corners of the earth. That means from everywhere he goes out and he finds those who have not put their faith in Christ. And he's collected them and they're going to come and attack God's people. And he symbolically uses these terms Gog and Magog. They seem pretty formidable. And you know what? They are. If you went to fight them by yourself, you'd lose. But they surround the camp of the saints. They surround the beloved city. What's going to happen? Now these two images immediately shoot us back to the book of Ezekiel. They shoot us back to the the book of Exodus. How does God win? Well, on the one hand, by His Word He wins. But here... Not only is it his word, but fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. God wins with his heavenly fire. Remember, God brought Israel out of Egypt with this fiery pillar. Remember when the sacrifices are instituted in Leviticus, fire comes down from heaven and consumes that sacrifice. And remember Elijah as he opposes Baal. As he opposes the idolatry in his 
nation Israel. Elijah doesn't do the winning. God does. And he does it as he sends fire from heaven to purify and to designate those who truly worship God. And those who don't truly worship God are consumed by the Lord's fire. Not only does fire devour the serpent, the devil, the devil is, it's not enough to die. Death is just this temporary little thing. No, that ancient serpent is cast into his eternal destiny, into the lake of fire where he's tormented day and night. It's easy to forget the devil in our current time and place, but I think here as we see the devil and as we know that the devil is going to come and attack the heavenly saints, the city, the people, we have to acknowledge that it's the schemes are terrible. From the trickery of the garden to that twisting, terrible work that he did with Job and his family to our own personal struggle in our relationships, with our sin, with our own flesh, the devil's work is bitter. It hurts. Now, it's easy to think, I can just fix myself. It's easy to go to the doctor nowadays with a problem and they'll just give you a pill. Or so we think. Go to a counselor, fix our relationship. Change a job so I don't have a bad boss. Move to a new house so I don't have to deal with dandelions. <laughs> no mo may loves its dandelions. But we know that suffering just isn't always solvable. I've yet to meet the person who's actually figured out how to solve their sleepless nights. The point, though, is most of us, at some point, all of us are going to run into the point in which we can't solve all of our problems. We can't solve all of our sufferings, both our own sin and, and the attacks of the devil and the breaking down of our bodies. There's this irony that as we mature, our bodies start to fall out apart. We're not going to find a solution in living forever here. We live in this already not yet tension that we talked about as we started, where we still have the bitter taste of Genesis 3, of the fall in our mouths. And yet, for those who are in Christ, we, we have this hope in God's salvation. God's salvation is the only thing that fully answers our deepest needs. Now, John finishes the chapter, beginning in verse 11, by reminding us that every wrong will be accounted for. And he shows us by telling us about two books or two sets of books. There's one that's a set of books. One is books, and the second is book. On the one hand, the books are open. This is a list of all the wrongs you've ever done. All of your works. Have you lived the way you should have? Have you made all your wrongs right? The good thing about that is, I guess, when you're a kid, you forget everything as an adult. 
But you don't forget the things you do wrong as an adult, do you? Can you make all those wrongs right? If we are living in the world of being judged by these books of the works of man, no one can stand. There's nothing we can do but feel the weight of our guilt. Just think back. Maybe you don't feel this way, but think back to all the desires and works of your middle and high school years. There's nothing to feel but guilt. <laughs> Maybe you're perfect. I don't know. I doubt it because I taught middle school too long. What, what am I supposed to do? I think that it's not, there's some false guilt in here, but on, in the end, there is true guilt where you did wrong and your desires were wrong. There is no hope for you if you simply look back on your list of what you've done wrong and trying to make it right. Praise God, there's another book. There's one book that isn't about all the works that I've done. Instead, we have a book of life. If your name's in the book of life, the works listed in the book of judgment mean nothing. It's almost as if that list is erased by the blood of Christ. The theme of the book of life seems to me to go back all the way to Exodus chapter 32. At the end of the golden calf episode, remember Aaron's like, so Moses has been gone a long time. Let's build an idol. That's not a bad idea, right, guys? When Moses comes down, what does he do? He pleads for Israel. He pleads for God's forgiveness. The only solution is forgiveness from the judge. But now, he says, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, just blot me out. This is Moses talking. Just blot me out of your book. The only way I can enter and I, I can approach you, Lord, is through forgiveness. The book of life is the book of forgiveness. And then Exodus 34 continues on telling us about who God is to his people. He says, The Lord, that's the Lord's name, Yahweh, Yahweh. This is where God reveals himself with his own words. He's telling us about who He is. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who we need God to be. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. We need God to be a forgiving God. This is God talking about himself in his own words. These are words that I have always clung to. You know, you think of your growing up hood and the, the authority figures in your life and the, the, the struggle with imperfect forgiveness and, and imperfect anger. And you look at who God is and you say, that's what I need. Not only for this life right now, for the, to enter into this heavenly city, to, to, to overcome death just like Christ, to participate in the life that is in Christ. 
God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Love and forgiveness shown most clearly through the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You see, we can't rely on our own effort. Can't rely on our own works to save us. One of the great things about different languages is how they talk about salvation. And one of, I think Latin talks, salvation is pretty close to the meaning of healing. Right? We need, we need God to heal us. We need God to save us from our sins. We need a whole salvation. As we keep getting older day by day, every day death is one day nearer. And yet Paul reminds us we're being renewed day by day. As our bodies grow weaker, as sickness beats us up even worse, sin and death and the devil's temptation keep coming. Remember that tension that I pointed out at the beginning? Remember the tension that I pointed out about the point of the passage? For those who put their faith in Christ, who are marked, who are sealed by God's Spirit, we have salvation. We have the hope of heavenly citizenship, hope of healing. We can say, Christ's works are mine. Okay, I've already died with Him. I've, I'm raised with Him. I have life with Christ. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I can look forward to life one day without suffering, even if I lose my head. in chapter 20. Those are, the stere that's, those are the examples of Christians that we follow. As, I finish, as we finish, I think it's important to believe these truths, trusting in Christ. I think it's also important to remember this. We're saved by faith. And fruit grows out of this salvation. I like to think of it as a slow and a steady thing. But there's fruit. It takes time. I just bought a lime tree and a yuzu tree recently because I'm goofy like that. The lime tree is just flowering right now. You know when I'm going to get limes from it? I think in the winter. Next winter. As the snow is falling, the limes are going to be ripe. It takes forever. My apples, I'll, I'll have them ready by August. Fruit takes time. As we put our faith in Christ, it's gonna, we got to be patient as we labor, but know that it is a product of what Christ has done. Just think of all the fruits in the Scriptures. The fruit of our salvation is love, joy, and peace. The fruit of our being saved is love for God and love for one another. These are the things we do as we grow up into our salvation. But we should remember fruit takes forever to mature. So be patient. Be hopeful. Praise the Lord, though, that we see these things starting to take root and starting to bear fruit ever so slowly. As I finish, I want to point out just Romans chapter 16. One of my youth pastors used to sing the song that was very youth groupy, and I'm not going to sing it because I don't remember it exactly. 
But in Romans 16, he, he talks about Satan soon being crushed under your feet. So, right? Satan's going to be done someday. And what does Paul tell us to do? But to be, to be wise to what is good and innocent of evil. I think as we read Revelation 20, that's a perfect ending point for us. In the thick of it all, it's, e- it's hard for us to fully grasp what we ought to be doing. But I think simply considering what does it look like for us to be wise to good? What does it look like for us to be innocent of evil as we anticipate the end of death, as we anticipate the end of the serpent? With that, let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we ask that you would instruct us to live with hope. And as we have put our faith in Christ as we live this life of faith. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what is, it looks like to be wise to good and innocent to evil. We pray, Lord, that you would give us hope in our trials, whether it is our wasting away body or our difficult difficulty with sin or hard hard relationships. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.